idea. Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, host of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Clinical Guidelines podcast series. Today, we will be discussing the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Guidelines on Infection Prevention for Healthcare Personnel Caring for Patients with Suspected or Known COVID-19. Joining us today is the Chair of the Guidelines Committee, Dr. John Lynch. Dr. Lynch is a professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me on, Neil. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you back again. As we were just chatting, it has been a year and a half since we did the first version uh, of the PPE guidelines on this podcast, and clearly we've all gone through a lot since then. Yeah, absolutely. It has been quite the last year and a half. Actually, for us here in Seattle, getting close to two years. Um, I definitely wish we had the opportunity to do more frequent updates on these guidelines, but the people doing this work have been just overwhelmed over the last uh, you know year and a half plus. And so just great to have the opportunity to get together and work on this again. Good. We all learn a lot from it and appreciate the strong evidence base that that is looked at that goes into this. And and I'll just say at the outset so that our listeners understand that the IDSA uses the great approach, which is a rigorous evidence-based approach, uh, something that people uh, need to recognize when they hear the recommendations is what the different terms mean. And in the grade recommendation, the word recommend indicates a strong recommendation, and the word suggest indicates a conditional recommendation, one for which there is evidence, but which there is more judgment involved in how one would interpret the recommendation. Before we get into the recommendations themselves, though, can you just touch on uh, the crisis standards of care framework and how things were divided between conventional versus contingency or crisis capacity settings? Certainly, Neil. You know, I think we talked a lot about this. Everyone talked a lot about this last year when we were thinking about extremely constrained supplies, extremely constrained capacity to take care of patients. When we think about the crisis of standards of care, as we've seen even more recently in some of the states here in the U.S., um, when capacity becomes limited, we have to think about alternative ways of delivering care as best possible. In the care setting, when we think about this, conventional is routine care. Contingency is delivering the same care, but maybe using different approaches. And then crisis standards of care is when things very much change. And we've seen a lot about this in media about, you know, basically allocating resources to certain patients based on, you know, survivability and similar. On the supply side, on the PPE side, we use the same framework when we're looking at uh, our access to PPE. So for instance, If we have a normal complete supply of respirators or gloves or what have you, we would use them in a standard way. If we have uh, an extremely limited supply, we don't have enough, right? That'd be a crisis. In the middle is a conventional approach where we don't, excuse me, a a contingency approach where we have a limited or constrained supply, not enough to use in a conventional, but not quite at crisis. There aren't clear definitions around this, but the framework itself, I think worked extremely well as we worked through the evidence and think about the prioritization of PPE utilization by healthcare workers. 
That's great. That's really helpful. And also, before we start talking about the recommendation themselves, because the background here is important, can you talk about the different modes of transmission of COVID-19 that are important to us to understand clinically? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this has been an, an area, a hot topic and an area of great evolution. And I think it's been fantastic over the last year and a half since we last spoke. You remember a year and a half ago, we were worried about surfaces. We were worried about droplets. We were worried about other respiratory particles, you know, what have you. And what we've really learned over the last year and a half, thanks to a lot of fantastic scientists out there, including, I want to give a shout out to the folks in the the aerosol science area of really uh, educating all of us around uh, what the real transmission uh, ranking should be. And I think the clear takeaway is that very small respiratory particles aerosols for the most part, and droplets contribute to transmission. And what that means is that it's not the surfaces that are driving this. It's not the fomites. It's not a lot of the things that we're worried about um, around, you know, even gloves and gowns as being really important interventions in preventing COVID transmission in healthcare settings. It's really around the respiratory route. And sometimes that respiratory route can be right up in front of a person and sometimes at a greater distance. Um, and I'd say that's probably the key takeaway that I would highlight over the last year and a half. That's critically important. Thanks. The first recommendation in the IDSA guidelines is, and I'll quote from it, the IDSA guideline panel recommends that healthcare personnel caring for patients with suspected or known COVID-19 use either a medical surgical mask or an N95 or N99 or PAP or respirator compared with no mask as a part of appropriate PPE. That was a strong recommendation with a moderate certainty of evidence. Can you go over some of the evidence and degree of protection offered and, and some of the differences between medical surgical versus N95s? Sure. So I think this is one of the most important parts of the document, even uh, though it remains essentially unchanged. And I think the fact is unchanged is, is one of the important things to highlight here. When the committee met again and worked with our methodology team around this particular recommendation, you know, obviously the first place is to go to the literature. And what I would highlight here is, unfortunately, we continue to have an incredible lack of more evidence, of new information around this situation, um, particularly around N95s versus uh, surgical masks. And indeed, surgical masks versus no masks. Um, we've gotten some more sort of uh, descriptive information over the last year around mask use in the community, but even that lacks robustness uh, in really clarity around what's the best way to protect people in the community and health workers while they're at work. Um, and so what I would highlight here is, and I think when sometimes readers look at this, they see a dissonance between, for instance, what the CDC is recommending, which is really pushing you know, respirators and, and our recommendation to IDSA. Our goal in this was to use the best evidence to make a recommendation that serves as a baseline. It does not preclude that an institution go beyond that uh, baseline. You know, if an institution decides to use respirators in the care of patients with COVID, uh, suspect or known COVID, perfectly fine. But this is where we wanted to draw the evidence. This is where we know the evidence lies. Um, and I think that that is going to be ongoing to be a very, very important place to draw attention to desperate need for more information um, for this issue. So in, just in terms of the differences, I just want to make sure that people recognize when we talk about the medical surgical mask, you know, again, this is a broad area of, of respiratory protection. 
but we're really focused on the multi-layer masks that fit reasonably well, that are disposable, that we typically use uh, in healthcare environments um, versus an N95 or a higher level respirator. We're talking about a lot of different respirators these days, N95s, N99s, PAPRs, CAPRs, and even elastomeric half mask respirators. These are the ones that you have a replaceable filter on and they can be washed uh, between uses. All of those are potential uh, interventions for respiratory protection against the tiny respiratory particles or aerosols that we've mentioned. Um, but in terms of data, we really need uh, more information and, and evidence for which of these is the best tool to use. Great point. Another area where I think there's a lot of confusion, and I certainly hear a lot of questions among my colleagues, is about eye protection. Can you go over the recommendations and the evidence there? Well, as you can see in the recommendation, you know, as you read it, this is a conditional recommendation with very low certainty of evidence. Again, when we worked with a methodology team, we did not find good data on putting using eye protection as a way to prevent transmission via the kind of the mucosal route via the eyes. Now we do again recognize the CDC has a recommendation in their guidance to use eye protection, but in our perspective, again, looking at the data, it just isn't there. The evidence isn't strong, but given the potential route of droplets and aerosol transmission, we felt that wearing eye protection in terms of harm was very low and if, uh, you know, and for the protection level, uh, reasonable. So again, low certainty of evidence, conditional recommendation, but better than not wearing it at this point until we know more. Makes sense. How about shoe covers? <laughs> yeah, shoe covers, you know, this is the one that we talked about actually removing. This is one we had last year. Uh, you remember when we first moved into the COVID-19 pandemic, really the picture we got coming out of uh, Wuhan in the Hubei province was, you know, full coverage in suits and double gloves and and shoe covers. And we really recognized that we needed to address this. We've learned that shoe covers uh, have no uh, evidence whatsoever, no even practical evidence around transmission uh, inhibition. So it is identified here as a knowledge gap. And as such, we, we discussed actually removing it from the guidelines, but I think keeping this uh, not only for archival purposes, but also to recognize that we've reviewed this information, we continue to re review the information, and there have been no updates. So our condition remains the same. Makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about aerosol generating procedures? Yeah, so this continues to be another hot topic, you know, sort of, a, again, thinking about surgical masks or surgical medical masks versus N95s in the routine care of patients with known or suspected covid what we do around aerosol generating procedures uh, continues to be a significant challenge as well. And again, our goal here was to review the evidence and provide recommendations based only on the evidence. And uh, we also recognize that what an aerosol generating procedure is, is a big unknown. I think there's a lot of controversy around this, very little evidence around what those things are. And indeed, even if aerosol generating procedures contribute to transmission at a rate that is greater than simply talking to a patient with known or suspected COVID or a coughing patient with known or suspected COVID. The data right now would indicate and actually lean towards routine interactions with patients as being probably higher risk than a lot of the things that we've traditionally classified as AGPs. Despite that, because of the concern around AGPs and some of the historical data from other respiratory viruses, we decided to uh, lean towards healthcare worker protection, and uh, use what evidence is there to support the use of respirators in those settings, despite the fact that the level of, of evidence is still very low. 
actually at the same level as eye protection is. Um, and so the evidence isn't there. There's a desperate need for evidence in this area, but we wanted to lean towards there just because of the historical data indicating that higher risk. John, I want to thank you for being so clear in how you keep reflecting about the way that the IDSA has been very careful about adhering to the evidence and how large the evidence gaps are. I think a lot of people don't recognize that, and it's important to recognize. In addition to the rigorous grade approach on specific questions, John, the committee also discussed a number of important questions and, and provide us with guidance. Can you talk about the committee's stance and some of the data around universal masking to prevent COVID-19 transmission in healthcare settings? Yeah, thanks. I think this is a really important part of the guidelines, these narrative summaries where we weren't able to provide grade level recommendations, but we're able to do some data review and some sort of expert guidance. And I'd say for this particular question, our expert guidance uh, group, the committee universally recommended universal masking in healthcare settings. I think we've all become quite used to this and more comfortable with it across uh, North America and other parts of the world. And what I'd say is an important caveat to this is that these data come from non-COVID settings, looking at other respiratory viruses and the benefit uh, in these you know, observational studies of wearing masks in those settings. Um, and so it's, we looked at a number of studies, each looking at different parts of this. I would make sure that everyone understands that whenever we look at masking studies, and this is one of the key things and why we've, I think we haven't had good data in this area, it's hard to disarticulate the mask, the impact of masking from things like distancing, staying home when you're sick, hand hygiene, you know, and, and other tools that we've used. Despite that, uh, despite the sort of noise behind all this, I think that the data leans towards healthcare worker safety, improved safety with universal mask use uh, while in the healthcare setting. It seems to make a lot of sense um, as, as well. Um, can you touch on something, if you don't mind, that the guidelines didn't specifically address, but I think a lot of our listeners are asking, which is guidance as we're coming into the uh, upcoming flu season with COVID, uh, with other respiratory viruses, guidance for what to do in the ambulatory setting? Well, I think that if we look at the data we just talked about, you know, that universal masking appears to be very effective in preventing transmission in healthcare settings. And so when I think about RSV and human adenovirus and all the viruses, including flu, that we're going to start seeing, I think that universal masking is going to continue to help prevent transmission in that setting. Um, obviously, in the context of hand hygiene and keeping health workers home when they're ill, um, we can definitely see that that worked last year. Uh, in healthcare settings, right? Masking across the board and all the other tools we had in place basically shut down flu uh, within the community, excuse me, within healthcare settings, but in a context of very low community incidence. So I think we're going to learn a lot this year. Unfortunately, it's another new year. It's our third COVID winter. Um, and, you know, we're starting to see flu outbreaks. I think most notably today's November 16th. Uh, and we know there's a big outbreak going on at the University of Michigan, for instance, uh, and I'm sure it's going on elsewhere. And we're, we're going to start to see what happens when we see flu numbers increase in community and how that starts impacting healthcare settings and the pieces we have in place to keep healthcare workers safe. I think that's so helpful, John. As we're wrapping up, any other recommendations or thoughts that you'd like to share? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the things I'd like to finish with are the things I started with is that these are guidelines based on evidence. These are the baseline. And uh, we definitely do not discourage higher levels of PPE in different situations.
based on the experience that you're you're dealing with at your facility. Um, we do strongly recommend for known or suspected COVID patients, uh, again, universal masking in those settings, but even beyond that, universal masking within facilities. We don't have any data as to what the off-ramp looks like. You know, when can we take off masks? And we're going to continue to look for evidence around that in the future. Um, I would say that I, I'm deeply appreciative of the methodologists who were able to guide us through this work and the rest of the committee members who really spent a great deal of time on, on the review of the information and try to provide the best guidance available for uh, all of us out there. Dr. John Lynch, thank you so much for all the work you're doing on the committee, all the work that you're doing in the hospital, and today for being on this podcast with us. Thanks so much, Neil. Really appreciate it. For the IDSA, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, uh, and thank you for listening.